Amen. Good morning. Good to see you today. Let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Haggai, chapter 1. We're in the Minor Prophets series. We're going to get there in just a moment. We're getting to the end. Just got a few more left. And uh, I hope that you found this to be engaging and interesting and hopefully informational, as oftentimes the Minor Prophets are a little bit of a lesser known part of the Bible. Before we get into the word today, I want to have Armando and Sylvia and Gabriel. Would you come up here just for a quick moment? Uh, Armando and Gabriel and Sylvia have accepted Christ as Savior and been baptized and have recently moved from uh, Los Angeles or Los Angeles area, California. And I remember the first time I met uh, this family was at, was at Trunk or Treat. Yes. And uh, I said, hey, you guys come to church. And sometimes you never know if they will, but they did. And um, they were able to follow Christ, and some of you may have been at the baptism. Um, and we're thankful for what God's doing. And now they have uh, been to new members class, and so they are welcomed into uh, the fellowship here at River City Baptist Church. So let's welcome them to River City Baptist Church. Um, I was saying to our, we had a new members class this morning. If you're interested in membership at River City Baptist Church, you can fill out a connection card. Put your name, put your information, put member. We'll get in touch with you about the next one that's coming up. Uh, one of the things I love about joining a church um, uh, is that you use the gifts that God's given you in the body. And I was using an illustration of Armando, and it's very evident when you see him, he's got the gift of serving. Any room he walks into, it's just immediate. Just what I can't even I can't even pick up a trash bag around the guy. Uh, he yank it out of my hand and get going. So it's just a blessing. Listen, everybody needs a church. Everybody. Everybody needs to be a part of a church. And everybody, everybody needs to serve and give and be faithful in a church. So I wish you love you guys and so happy for your faith and now following the Lord. And let's welcome again as they find their seat again. Thank you so much. For 17 seasons, NBC aired The Biggest Loser. How many of y'all watched The Biggest Loser? Let's just confess. What a, what a, what a show. It featured the three-month filming of a dramatic weight loss journey for men and women Featuring intense workouts and nearly starvation level diets where people would literally hack off like 200 pounds or more. I can't remember all the details of all the winners and losers, but I do remember uh, season nine at the weigh-in, which is the initial weigh-in, where they all have to, let's just say, face the facts. It's an extraordinary scene where... For the first time, sometimes in a really long time, people actually step up on the scales and look at what has become of their physical condition. In season nine, uh, Shay stepped on the scales at 476 pounds. At that time, she was the largest female contestant, uh, and to watch her response, which was not unique, it happened over and over and over again to people as they, as they looked and as they faced 
what they've been neglecting. In fact, they've showed at times when people were deciding to be contestants to actually weigh in. I've, I've watched uh, women and men uh, lock themselves in a bathroom for hours, refusing to come out and face the facts. Some of them had to be placed on freight scales. I mean, it's just, it's just this bizarre journey. But the journey with every one of them began by stopping and taking a look at what really is going on. And that is the message of Haggai. The message of Haggai, the prophet, is stop for just a minute and really take a look at what's actually going on. And I want to read this text. I'm going to read a little bit longer today. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, where, where in the book of Haggai, there's a unique thing right from the beginning. We have the prophet identified. We have an actual time, a date that is given for a message. And it's one of those unique books of the Bible where actually I believe it's four times throughout the book a specific date is mentioned historically. Look at verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. That's the second time in two verses that same thing has been said. It's going to be said two more times. At least the word consider in chapter 2. But, but that's the real message. I'm going to stop my reading there. I was going to go further, but I'll get to it in just a minute. Consider your ways. That's what Haggai's message is to the people of Israel. We learn in verse number 1 a very exact time, location, and circumstance of his message uh, to the people of Israel. And it says here, uh, in the second year of King Darius... Now, when you study this historically, Haggai is going to be what we call a post-exile prophet, okay? Now remember, there's Israel's story in the Old Testament is before Canaan, in Canaan, and after Canaan. It's real simple to understand the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament revolves around this promise of God to a group of people, and included in that promise was a land, what we call the promised land, right? The land that flows with milk and honey. The whole entire story of the Old Testament is about that land. It's about God making a promise to them. It's about them failing to keep that promise. It is about them getting the land, then ultimately losing the land, and then going back to the land. So when I say post-exile, I mean that Haggai's message comes after the exile, in fact, way into the exile, roughly at the turn of the 6th century B.C. So we're like at 510, 516 B.C., 70 years after Israel leaves 
uh, Israel into Babylonian captivity. Now, as I've mentioned before in these sermons, Babylon has been destroyed. There's a new kingdom in charge, the kingdom of Persia. And the king here, King Darius, is the second of the kings of Persia. So that's where we are. Now what has happened historically is Israel has been told by King Darius to go back to Israel and fundamentally start rebuilding the temple or the tabernacle. Now, if you're taking notes here, mark down the book of Ezra as a cross-reference. The story of Haggai is inserted into the book of Ezra. What's the book of Ezra all about? It is about a group of people, Zerubbabel and Joshua, who lead the children of Israel back to Jerusalem to a decimated city and a decimated temple, and they are given the responsibility to rebuild first the temple and then later the walls. Now that was in the book of Nehemiah, right? So Ezra takes place before Nehemiah. Ezra focuses on rebuilding a temple that was destroyed. Uh, Nehemiah focuses on rebuilding a wall that was destroyed. And Ezra is the scribe or the preacher that's involved in all of it. So what happens? Ezra uh, gets a group of people and they, they, they return under the leadership of these two men that are mentioned in verse number 1. And this all takes place in Ezra chapter number 1. In Ezra chapter 1, God allows them to return. And the Bible says that some people went and some people gave. By the way, that is really good practice for people in the church today. Some people go and some people give, but we should be involved in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That takes place in chapter 1. In Ezra chapter 2, we get a catalog of all the people that went. In chapter number 3, they start rebuilding the temple again. And then something unique happens in chapter number 4. In chapter number 4, there is an opposition that arises against the rebuilding effort. Certain people, governors, as the Bible calls them, they were, they were basically Persian government officials ruling over a small territory. They start giving the people of Israel a hard time. In fact, they give them such a hard time that they fabricate lies about these people and write back to King Darius and say, these people are up to no good. They're trying to undermine you. They're going to destroy you. They're trying to harm you. And guess what happens? The king issues back a letter and tells them, you need to stop building the temple because of the things that they have heard. Now, here's what happens. Our story takes place at the end of Ezra chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter number 5. In fact, uh, I'm going to read Ezra chapter 5 verse 1, where the Bible says, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God. So that's what happens historically. Now what you find in the book of Haggai is the actual message that Haggai preached that is referred to in Ezra chapter number 1. Now folks, here's the whole point that Ezra is, or that Nehemiah, or excuse me, Haggai is walking into. Haggai is a preacher, okay? God has called him to challenge the people of Israel. What is he challenging them about? Well, God sent them to rebuild the temple. And now their lives have settled back into life in Jerusalem. And the bottom line is they quit doing what God called them to do. So Haggai steps up and says this, hey guys, consider your ways. I told you to build the temple and you've gotten distracted with other pursuits. 
And the message of Haggai is this. It is consider where you are, consider what is going on, and consider the message of God to you. And let's get back building the temple. So what should we be considering this morning? Number one, we should be considering our misplaced priorities. We should be considering our misplaced priorities. But look, look at what is said here uh, in verse number two. Verse two says, this people says, the time has not come that the Lord's house should be built. Now remember, the, the building project has stopped because of opposition. And now the people have settled in to life in Jerusalem and they've long forgotten what God has already told them to do. And now when people ask about the temple, here's their answer. Oh, God doesn't want us to do that anymore. How convenient. How convenient to just say, yeah, God isn't into that anymore. God doesn't want me to do that anymore. God isn't asking me to participate in it anymore. And look at verse 4, though. Here's where the misplaced priorities come. In verse 4, the word comes through the prophet and says this. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lies in ruins and let me explain that word paneled there uh, some of you maybe use a version that says sealed c-i-e-l-e-d uh, the, the word uh, sealed sealing okay paneled let me, let me simplify it for you refers to finished carpentry okay now we're in a building right here you're sitting in this building right here and what you are seeing is finished carpentry you are seeing uh drywall and paint and lighting and uh, beautiful electronics and comfortable chairs this is all finished right you don't do this stuff before you do what behind all that are studs and 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 uh uh you know uh what's that stuff called that, that keep insulation there you go thank you guys somebody else want to come up here and teach this morning yeah so you got you know you got you got you got, you got insulation you got studs and behind all that what do you have you have plans Underneath that, you got foundations. We don't look at, 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 at what we call rough carpentry. That's what you do at the beginning. Then once you get to the end of a project, that's when you finish it. You put all the, you know, the beautification of it. You see it all come to life, right? If we were to take down all this stuff, you would see, you would see an unfinished auditorium, okay? Now, here's what God is saying. God is saying, here's the interesting thing about you guys. If I were to go to your house... It is finished. You didn't waste any time putting your house together. You painted your walls. You hung your pictures on the wall. You got your light fixtures. You got your 55-inch plasma TV set up on the wall. You got your swimming pool in the backyard. You've got your nice car in the driveway. But here's the problem. Your house is finished, but mine's not. In other words, you focused on you but somewhere along the line, you left me out. Wow. Now that sounds like, sad to say, some of us. Where we have prioritized our own lives, our own finances, our own homes, our own vehicles, our own careers. To the neglect of God and his house. Now, isn't it true that if we were just to start really looking at our priorities, we're going to find out that just about everything else in the world is a priority except for God and his house. I watched a captivating story this week um, 
about a brand new nonprofit organization in the UK called Elizabeth's Smile. It's hard to imagine having the kind of wealth that Nick Hungerford enjoys. He is a British tech investor, started a company called Nutmeg, which was sold to um, a large financial corporation just a couple years ago to the tune of $1 billion. I don't know exactly how much money he ended up making on the deal, but I can only imagine it was more than any of us have. Okay? Now, if you're even close to this kind of thing, you need to be talking to me okay, immediately. I need, I need to know who you are. All right? But needless to say, this is a wealthy man living in the UK in his early 40s. Sadly, Nick was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer. And this article that I read on the news just this past week was his article, and the title of the article was, I have two months to live. Just this past week. And he wrote the article. And he wrote the article about his bone cancer has advanced beyond the ability to have it uh, any effect. He's got tumors uh, in his legs, in his ribs, now all throughout his entire body. He's going to die. His tumors are so large in his uh, spine and other places that the tumors are now breaking his bones. So he's literally sitting and living with his bones just breaking all the time in excruciating, agonizing pain going toward his certain death. But he said when he and his wife were given the final alternative therapies and were offered family counseling because... Uh, there was no medical thing that could be done anymore. He said he was shocked at how little was offered for his two-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. No counseling, no resources, no, no financing, no help. He said, I quote, my daughter, I decided, was not going to be condemned to a lifetime of grief, worry, or disadvantage because of my illness. He said, quote, she is always smiling, always cheers everyone up, and I am determined that that smile will not stop after I'm gone. So he started the nonprofit and set it up uh, with an endowment to fund and help and uh, care for kids who have parents that die from terminal illnesses. He said, I had to do something. Starting now, listen, and continuing beyond the grave, I had to do something that would prevent vulnerable children from suffering any more that is necessary. What an extraordinary way to live. In fact, the article is fascinating. You can look it up and read it. I mean, what the guy is doing while he's, while he's dying right now, focusing all of his attention and all of his efforts on this one thing, making sure his daughter and others like her will not suffer beyond what is necessary in this tragedy. And he's literally putting his money and his time where his mouth is and making something happen to outlive himself. You know, I, I tell you folks, it, it's interesting how some things realign our priorities faster than others. 
It's interesting how some news will come or some circumstance that will awaken us and all of a sudden what we do, we have to consider our ways. We have to ask ourselves, what really matters to me? I mean, I wonder if you were, I wonder if I flipped that on you today. I wonder if right here and right now, you, you, you heard the same news that this guy heard. You got two months from right now and you're out of here. You're done. Let me ask you a question. What would fundamentally be changing right now about you if that were true? I mean, what would be different? What would your priorities look like? How would your family look? How would your finances look? How would your church attendance, church giving, church serving, how would your calendar look? What would go off the calendar? What would go on the calendar? What conversations would you need to have? What people would you spend time with? Would that business matter as much as it does now? I mean, what would you do if you had to consider your ways? And all I'm saying to you this morning, you don't have to get a death sentence to stop for a minute and say, God, where am I at right now? Where are my priorities? How am I doing? Where am I at? So number one, you consider, first of all, your misplaced priorities. And then secondly, you need to consider your necessary consequences. Guys, here's, here's the point. Our misplaced priorities will cause us to experience the often unintended consequences of those actions. And folks, listen, God is not here today trying to hurt someone. How many of y'all know, anytime God gives us a priority or God gives us a way to live, he's doing it because he knows it's the best possible thing for you. In other words, God says you should or should not do this, let's say, whatever this is. Well, let's, let's, let's take one of the Ten Commandments. And God says, you shall not commit adultery. Hello, okay? I mean, that, that's an obvious, black and white, clear, front page news in the Bible. Don't do that. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't physically get involved with somebody you're not married to. That, I mean, that, that is, that's an obvious command. Is everybody okay here? It's an obvious command. It's black and white. No gray there, right? Now, you've got to ask yourself the question, why does God give us that command? And here's what you can know about anything God tells you to do. It's for your good. It's for his glory. And it's for the betterment and enrichment of your experience while you are here on this earth. Amen. And here's what else you can know. When I get outside of that, there are going to be some consequences, not because the basic principle, listen to what Danny Aiken said. He said, instead, this idea is a basic principle that God has designed the world so that it functions best when we are aligned with his commands and his purposeness. Human flourishing generally occurs... When we honor God and follow his commandments. So what does that mean? It means I'm not talking about financial. We're just talking about life. I'm talking about the Hebrew word shalom, peace, life lined up correctly. It's guys, listen, this is not rocket science. When is life lined up best for every human in this world? When we are lined up with the purposes and will of God in our life, you will flourish. You may not have all the money you want, you may not have all the health that you need, but you will flourish where only God can make you flourish. And when you step outside of that, there's going to be an issue. Now, there's two ways this works. First of all, there are natural consequences that just happen. You ever notice that sometimes God doesn't have to do anything to anybody, he just has to let it ride. Let me tell you, the worst thing some of us will ever get is what we're living for. We live for it, we pursue it, and God says, okay, help yourself. We're going to see how that works out. And then there's sometimes where God will initiate a response, and that's what happens here. Look at this. You have, verse 6, you have sown much. He says, consider your ways. Here, I want you to think about this. 
You've sown much, you've worked hard, but you didn't get anything out of it. You have all the food and drink you want, but you're never satisfied. Is anybody listening to me? You're earning money, but somehow that bank account that you're putting all that money into has a leak in it. Where'd it go? And then he goes on. Verse number nine. You looked for much, but brought, but, but indeed came, uh, uh, it came to little. And when you bought, uh, brought it home, it blew away. Why? Look at this. Or no, I'm sorry. Let me read that again. You brought it home. Look at this phrase here. Watch this. I blew it away. You focused in the wrong areas, and here's what I did. <laughs> That's God speaking there. That's a personal pronoun for God. The I there is God. I blew it away. And you say, man, God, how could God ever let something like Why would God ever do that? Because he, he wants you to understand his way and his path is best. And anything else that you pursue and you even grab a hold of, any financial, any material, any, any, any uh, 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 occupational, anything that I pursue outside of God, no matter what I get, I'm going to ultimately be empty and broken. And God says, you need to consider this. Have you considered what's going on in your life right now? All the loss, all the dissatisfaction, all the brokenness, all the struggle. It should stop us for a minute and, and cause us to kind of perch up a little bit and say, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Now, not every time a bad thing happens to somebody, it's because we understand it. We look to Job. We look to what Jesus said about the blind man. That's not the point. Bad things happen to good people all the time, and God's got purposes way beyond ours. But there are some times when things are happening in our lives, and it would be wise to stop and go, let me consider my ways. Years ago, Angie and I were working at a Christian camp. This was back in the early 2000s. We had just got married working at a Christian camp. And we had some friends there that were just a little bit be, uh, older than us and they had kids we didn't even have kids at the time and they had they had young children and we we became very close friends with them and we uh in fact uh they had one of their kids and we we stayed with their other kids while she was at the hospital delivering their third or fourth kid i can't remember which one so we we spent a lot of time we lived right next to each other at the camp we we would spend our evenings you know, playing board games and hanging out having fun after the camp kind of died down they were just like really our best friends through that season of life and one of their boys, and he's now grown, but one of their boys at the time was about two, and he was a tough kid. He was one of those strong-willed kids. And I know if you're a parent, you think they're all like that, okay? I look, but if you've got more than one, you know what I mean when I say there are some that are tougher than others, okay? I speak from experience here, okay? And they're just, you know, they're just wired different. They're, they had one, though. One, his name was Malachi, and he was, he was, man, he was just a tough dude. He just was always in trouble. He had an edge on him. And he, would go, he would just go, like, crazy. Didn't like anybody telling him what to do. He was just, he was that kid, right? And so, so at, uh, at their home one night, we were, we were sitting there, and, 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 and the mother decided she was going to bake some freshly baked cookies uh, that evening. And, and we were kind of excited. It started to smell good. We were playing some board games. Cookies were coming up. Coffee was brewing. We were having a great time. And she looked right at Malachi. She's pulling those out of the oven. She looks right at him and says, now, Malachi, do not touch this. She points right at the cookie sheet. And he did it with his hands. I am not kidding. I watched it with my own eyes. The dude looks right at his mom, puts his hand down, sticks out his tongue. No joke. Sticks out his tongue and walks right over and singes his tongue right on that cookie sheet. 
And he then, of course, proceeds with his tongue flopping out of his mouth to just start screaming. Obviously, he's going crazy. Ah, he's going nuts. His tongue's hanging out. It's like smoke coming off his tongue. I mean, it's crazy, right? He is just like burnt all of his taste buds for the next like generation off of his tongue. And he is going nuts, screaming out, crying. And like, look, and then he looks to his mom like this. Tongue's hanging out, screaming, looking to his mom like this. And she just looks at him and goes, I told you that was going to happen. And mercilessly, just let him cry it out. Dude, I told you not to touch, and you done did it. And the, the question is, what did you think was going to happen? And I would say that to people today. Like, what did we think was going to happen? We didn't prioritize the Lord. We didn't make him number one in our home. We didn't prioritize prayer with our family. We didn't prioritize our finances in such a way that we honored God and made his purposes first. What did you think was going to happen? What did you think the outcome of all this was going to be? That's what God's saying. Consider your way. So consider your misplaced priorities. Consider your necessary consequences. I want to say this thirdly. I love this. Consider your prophet's message. In verse number 7, he says it again. Thus says the Lord, consider your ways. And now he's going to, basically, there's a message from verses 7 to 11. There's a message that is preached. And basically, what does he say? He says in verse 10, look, the heavens above you withhold dew. The earth withholds its fruit. For I called, I, God says, I called for a drought. Verse 8, he says, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build my temple that I might take pleasure in it and be glorified. What's the prophet's message? Let's get back to it, guys. Let's get back to it. Stop what you're doing right now. Go up to the mountains. Get the wood. Let's start rebuilding again. And he says, and this is why, this is what's happening. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest, with the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. What happens here? Guys, I love this. Now, this is right up my alley this morning. What is the final part of, pro, of Haggai's message? Listen to your preacher. Right. Now, I'm not talking about some self-serving ideology where I'm standing here, this is what you guys should do. I'm talking about when there's a message from God, from the Bible, listen to the preacher. Listen to the preacher. Haggai was their preacher. Haggai said, look, guys, this isn't working. Let's start building again. And what happened? They built, and you can read the rest of the story in Ezra, it worked. John Stott said this, nothing is more important for the life and health of the church than biblical preaching. Churches live, grow, and flourish by the word of God. I was telling our new members class this morning, you may come in here and say, man, this is such a simple way to do church. We come in here every Sunday, we sing three songs, and by the time it's like 10 minutes after 10, I am preaching. And that's what happens for the rest of the time at church. Why? Because there's one thing at River City Baptist Church that is going to be it always has been it is it always will be central to what we do in this place and it is the preaching of the bible y'all hearing me today it is the preaching of the word of god nothing will make people flourish in their lives more than sitting under the place where the word of god is preached and what should we do what should we do folks it's it's very simple we should listen to the preaching of the word of god sometimes preaching is straight and to the point 
It's designed by God that way. Guys, do you know why sometimes, you guys, look, we were just two weeks ago preaching on Habakkuk. And y'all were lined up out the door to tell me how much you love the message. I got text message after text message after text. Oh, Pastor, that was so encouraging. And it was. It encouraged me. But guess what? Haggai is also in the Bible. And that's why 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says, Preach the word, be in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Meaning, there are times, there are times when preaching is encouraging and preaching is comforting. There's other times where preaching is convicting. And it doesn't matter which one's coming to you on Sunday morning. You say, which one are you predominantly going to do? Guys, it's just really simple. I'm going to do whatever's in the Bible. That's what I'm going to do. Whatever's in the Bible, if it's an encouraging message, you're going to get an encouraging message. If it's a challenging message, you're going to get a challenging message. And you know what? My, my spirit should not be, I'm coming to church and I'm going to decide I like that because it's comforting I don't like that because it's convicting no 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 I want it all man I want whatever God has for me sometimes sometimes I need my butt kicked sometimes I just do man sometimes I just need somebody to just look at me and go dude and there's sometimes I come in I just man I just I need I need I need encouraged but whatever it is, I know God knows what I need better than I do. And so when I come, I come to listen to the prophet. <clears throat> Stephen Lawson said this, there is something that's set forth in scripture. And that something is that preaching is so vitally important. We live, listen to this, we live in a day where almost the, the buzz phrase is stop preaching at me oh you're just preaching at me so we've given up services we've shortened preaching on Sunday is there any wonder he says I quote why churches are so weak and Christians are so weak he said if you would have asked the Puritans 400 years ago if you had one hour to give to either sit at home and read your Bible by yourself or go to church and hear somebody preach the word of God he said the Puritans would have said 10 times out of 10, get to church and let somebody preach the word of God to you. Now, I'm not negating or, neglect or trying to diminish at all the need for personal worship. Man, you need to do that. Hello. I hope I'm not the only thing feeding you spiritually. That would be tragic. But friends, let's not suppose that I do not need to come to the house of God and not just hear the message, but be a doer of the word and not just the hearer of the word. I'm reminded, as I read recently, a biography of Charles Spurgeon. Again, I've read, I've read his story many times, but it just captivated me once again. Spurgeon was a, was a, was a prodigy of sorts, and if you've, ever, if you've never read his story, you really, you really should. I mean, he's just a fascinating uh, preacher. Probably, as I've read multiple accounts, I think he was probably the most influential preacher in the history of the world. And he became a, a believer when he was about 15 years old. He started pastoring when he was 16. He was pastoring the largest church in London, England when he was 18. It was the new Park Street Church, and then it became the Metropolitan Tabernacle. His sermons were reproduced by the millions still to this day circulating. I mean, it's just it's a fascinating story. But he, he came to Christ on one evening in the winter. He was walking to try to get to a church. He couldn't get to the church because of a snowstorm, so he slipped into the only church that was available, a really tiny Methodist congregation in the middle of nowhere where the church was still gathering one evening on a Sunday evening. 
it was so treacherous outside that even the preacher couldn't make it to church. And so in a last-ditch effort to have a service that night, one of the deacons stood up just to speak and give the people something, the 10 or 15 people that showed up. And he opened up his Bible to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, and his whole message was, Look unto me, the, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God and there is none else. And the guy didn't have much of a message, but he just kept saying it over and over again. I'm telling you, look to Jesus and be saved. And he said at one point in the sermon, the, 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 the deacon literally pointed right at Charles Spurgeon and said, Young man, look unto Jesus and be saved. And Spurgeon said, I did. He said, right then and there, I looked to Jesus. My life was changed and I, my life was saved. I thank God, first of all, for that faithful preacher on a Wednesday night or Sunday night when hardly anybody came to church, still stood up, opened up the Bible because that's what those people need. They need to hear from God. And who could have ever told what would come out of that one service with 15 people and that man that got saved and changed the world in his day. Yep. And I'm saying to you, who knows, who knows? But for what moment I could walk into a service on any given Sunday and God could ring up my bell and speak to my heart and change my life. I mean, what would, how much money would you give, friend, for, for, a, for a sermon that would save your marriage? How much money would you give for a sermon that your child would hear the word of God and be saved? And what would you give for the rescue that comes from the health that comes, from the strength that comes, from the power that comes, from the transformation that comes from the word of God? Hey, I'm going to be here every time I possibly could. Good to hear what God has for me. Let's pray together. Friend, I'm glad you're here today. What a wonderful day and a great time to be in God's house. It's good to see you all here. God's doing something. Excited about it. I, I, every Sunday, every Sunday of my life, I give an opportunity for somebody to trust Christ as Savior. I did it last Sunday in Virginia. Two adults to their feet accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior last Sunday. We do it every week here. I want to give you the opportunity, if you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that today you would hear that message from God. Look unto Jesus and be saved. Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's the only forgiveness of sins. He's the only path to God and the only place that you can have a home in heaven. And the Bible says, look to me and be saved. Look to Jesus. Accept Jesus. Believe Jesus. And in fact, the Bible tells you how to do it. Call upon the name of the Lord. Accept him. Ask him. Today, maybe you're here and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but today you would want to do that. Can I encourage you to just right there in your seat, right where you are, just bow your head. Pray out loud or pray to yourself, to God in your heart. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You can pray. If you've never done that, I invite you to do it today. You want to be saved. You want God to change your life. You want God to give you eternal life. Obey his word. Something like this. Dear Jesus, just pray it right now to him. Dear Jesus. I know that I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. But I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose again from the dead. 
Today I accept him as my savior. Thank you for loving me. Help me never to be ashamed of you. Now friend, I'm encouraged today. If you prayed that prayer, you meant it, you're glad you did. Listen, I want to be the first person to welcome you to the family of God. Praise his name. It's as simple as that, isn't it? It really is. Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, and you believe in him for everlasting life. It's that simple. Now today I want to ask, is there anybody here that would share it with me? You say, preacher, I prayed that prayer a minute, I'm glad I did. And preacher, I just want you to know, I prayed and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior just now. And I want you to know, preacher, would you be praying for me? We have a gift for you, we want to help you. Right now you say, preacher, I just prayed that prayer, I meant it, and I'm glad that I did. Would you just slip your hand up high enough that I could see it? Would you do that? Just slip it right up to me and right back down. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to ask you to come anywhere. But if you did, I just want to know who you are so I can pray for you. I got a gift I want to get to you. And I want to encourage you today, church, as we leave this place, would you take a moment to consider your ways? Is there a priority that needs to be lined up? Is there something that I'm going through that maybe, maybe it's because my priorities aren't where they need to be and I'm, I'm experiencing some of that difficulty? I'm just going to open up the opportunity for you to come and pray for a few minutes. Folks have already come. Maybe, maybe God spoke to you today in a very specific and special way. Maybe you just want to come to the altar and spend a few minutes in prayer. Would you do that? It's open. Come and pray. Let's have some folks from our prayer team come. We've got a couple people I would love for you to pray with. Uh, let's do that if you would. Pray for these folks. Pray for the needs that they have. 